Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was thinking to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show into all the apps people like to listen? How do I make money from my podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. One to sentences in the thought. Don't worry, just do Anchor. With all the portals and everything in a sensible way, you get a benefit. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast, make money doing it. Go to anchor.fm slash start to join me and the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Uh, good evening to all. This is Abhi Vardhan from Internationalism and now we are in the final panel for the day at least uh, in the Jerusalem Conference on International Law 2020. So this is Abhi Vardhan and uh, what I have seen for this day and I hope you have also seen live on YouTube and Facebook is that we had uh, five sessions. So this is the fifth session. I should say we had four sessions. So the first of one, first of which was on populism and international law. Uh, then we had a, a panel, which is a track presentation, a very long one, which was completely on international humanitarian law. After that, uh, we had a very in- intellectual discussion on Indian foreign policy. And then we moved forward to track two on cyberspace and space law. And now we're going on for a very interesting present- uh, panel which is on uh, international humanitarian law, the scope of non-international armed conflicts. So uh, our panelists, that is uh, Preetam Khorsa, Naran Sharma, uh, Ms. Saiba, and Sarah, our moderator, will be arriving shortly. Uh, it would be great if our uh, co-panelist who is present currently would introduce himself. That would be a pleasure. Right. Hello, may I audible? Yeah, yeah, you're perfectly audible. Perfect. So, uh, my name is Narayan Sharma. And I think uh, it's not it's not that important for me to introduce myself. However, if that is an obligation as that, I'll just make it very <laughs> quick. Uh, I, I'm working as, as a product analyst uh, in MKCL presently, which is basically a government uh, sector undertaking. Uh, I basically work on products which are you know, trying to bring out a change in terms of sustainability and environmental progress of Maharashtra as a state. So you can call me an environmental policy analyst who designs uh, softwares and technologies to bridge the gap between people who are uneducated and illiterate and bring them to a common place to improve the quality of environment we live in. Apart from that, I set up a small thing called Pratarka, which is an organization that helps to uh, instill in young students uh, the capacity to speak 
uh, nurture themselves and you know become confident about their existence and aware about their flaws and you know develop social skills such as interaction with people not known to them uh, we have traveled across six different cities uh, specifically around ncr uh, lucknow and bhubaneswar and we have conducted close to 320 workshops where we have taught students how to interact and we are supposed to take this forward i i i think i also read a bit of uh, international law when i was free and i i very very glad and very fortunate to be a part of this organization i had this this conference where i can you know voice my opinion uh, as as a neutral member of the society which is constantly affected by international law without being aware of it yeah so thank you so much for uh, i should say gracious introduction we are just waiting for other panelists so uh, let's give a little gist of the panel so in the geneva conventions of 1949 the role of article 3 i should say common article 3 is impressive because it talks about non international conflicts and its and reality nowadays what happens is that in the decades since the i should say certain important non state actors i don't say this is the only decade because we had non state actors before uh, 2000 as well but certain very significant non state actors who are organized or unorganized sometimes privatized or non privatized sometimes based you know based on certain either the executive uh, executives i should say who are acting as the heads of state or the heads of government or the heads of at least the militaries i should say the army so actually had a very important role here like a significant so we in the middle east we had the uh, isis which we earlier known as isil and along with the actors who involved making isil were also connected with uh, the organization known as hezbollah which is in act which is, which is near the israeli area lebanon israel syria of that and the actors in hezbollah had a very important role with the recent person who was you know as per the diplomatic statements of the white house was killed by the us forces in the baghdad airport that is kasim sulaimani i won't comment on uh, whether the killing was legitimate or not but at least i will comment on the fact that uh, uh, you know state actors and non state actors have a very long history of relationship like these and here we're talking about non state actors we are generally talking about those non state actors who are completely illegal under international law because ihl does not confer any non state actor legal united nations for example or you know the red cross icr are legitimate actors they are uh, voluntarily mandated by states under international law that is another story but if we go to terrorist groups or you know those kind of organizations so it doesn't include civil societies ngos and all of that that will be a very interesting discussion to actually think about the parallel right because now when defense will become privatized when uh, conflicts will become more inclined to economic welling rather than just economic upheaval it will be interesting to see how uh, you know uh, could be averted how we can understand this whole area is to be understood under international humanitarian law because there has been a very significant just in december that the russian federation recently uh, you know pulled out itself of 
from that protocol in which there was a commission formed at the Geneva Conventions, additional protocol one and two, if I'm correct. And so Vladimir Putin thought that, okay, we should not be in that. Why? Because uh, no single member of Russian Federation was there, means like Representation Federation was there. And that commission was actually concerned with non-state actors and all of the work which was actually in participants. So we're just waiting for two minutes. Until then, you stay online. You can watch our previous discussions as well. But yes, uh, there will be a kind of an interesting one. We're just waiting for the panelists to arrive. Yes, uh, between that, Narayan, if you wish to make any point, make an insight about what you think for the panelists come, that would be great to proceed with. Otherwise, then the panelists will come, we'll obviously have a good discussion. Yeah, I mean, I will just, uh, you know, introduce uh, the uh, topic from my perspective in a very crisp manner. And I will say that uh, when you look at international uh, law, specifically the international humanitarian law, as you mentioned that uh, the only time when we talk about non-international armed conflicts, it happens specifically in case of uh, the common article 3 of the Geneva Conventions and to some extent the additional protocol too. However, uh, I, I think that this discussion should revolve largely around the fact that A, non-international armed conflicts are underrepresented in international and B, the representation of non-international armed conflicts is not equally understandable and interpretable to the people who are making these laws available to the nations. Uh, the fact that, you know, okay. it's a treaty law, uh, you know, signifies that it's only states which are liable to, you know, enter into agreements and, you know, follow them, which is the reason why the applicability of the Common Article 3 is, you know, sustained and it's restricted from uh, getting onto those non-state actors that you just mentioned. So my discussion, I mean, I, I, I hope that the discussion revolves around how we can increase the representation of uh, non-international armed conflicts within the purview of the national law. And secondly, uh, how we can expand the, uh, you can say, already limited reach of Common Article 3 and additional Protocol 2 to the various forms of modern warfare and modern conflicts which have emerged uh, in the recent uh, decade or so that tend to revolve around the umbrella of NIACs. Right. Right. So I'm hoping I'll have see. a great panel beside me as well, or else it's just going to be you and me, and I think that's uh, good enough for uh, us to start with. <laughs> I think so. If that's the case, we should, because we're still waiting. And, you know, server issues exist. We actually have had server issues either our side sometimes from other sides so it happens maybe i should think we should begin with it and we should you know see the frugalities so yeah let i'm passing the question okay. to you you're open to talk about it and i'll ask you questions sure sure so <clears throat> uh right so i don't know how to bring it out to the you know common front the reality that international law as we see it is something which affects us more than we know. And one of the most important forms of conflicts that we have seen getting arised in the last 30 odd years is international armed conflicts. You know, if you look at it this way, we haven't really seen uh, an international conflict 
beginning as an international conflict in the last 30 years. Every single international conflict has risen from non-international armed conflict. Most of them have, you know, sustained themselves within the ambits of the territories in which they were born. Before long enough, they could turn into non-international armed Before long enough, they would turn into internationalized armed conflicts. And at no point in history whatsoever during the last 30 years, we made these, you know, conflicts simply international. So what we see is that today we have two two kinds of conflicts. One of them is the NIACs, which are the non-international armed conflicts, and the others are basically internationalized armed conflicts, which is basically a magnified version of NIACs. Uh, I think you you mentioned, uh, you know, Syria, the Middle East, and you mentioned the organizations, the non-state actors uh, operating within the Middle East such as the ISIS or uh, the ISIL previously named, uh, Hezbollah, you know, Hamas, so on and yep. so forth. We have the AQAP in uh, Yemen, we have the Al-Nusra Front, uh, you know, in the northern part of Africa, we have so many other non-state actors performing and operating. Now, my, my first topic of discussion should be about how do you actually bring non-international armed conflicts within the purview of international law? Because the only time we see non-international armed conflicts getting mentioned is when we read the common article 3 of the Geneva Conventions, which specifically talks about only one thing, and that is proper treatment of people who have rendered themselves as uh, non-combatants or who, because of the dynamics of the war, become horse combat, so they cannot fight anymore. And how should we have, you know, a uniform uh, you know, non-biased organization that should be allowed to help those people in duress and distress. Those two parts, they form the common article three. Uh, I would like to begin by asking this question uh, to, you know, my panels if they were around or to you over here as well, that how much of, uh, you can say, impact, how much of uh, leverage does that common article three have on the present-day conflicts happening around the Middle East, let's say, and other parts of the world. Second question that I would like to you know, talk about or begin talking about is, is it enough for Common Article 3 and Additional Protocol 2 to be the only guiding instruments when we discuss international or, non or when we discuss on international law conflicts? Do we need to have more structure in international law? Do we need to have more awareness in international law? Do we need to have more outreach an enhanced outlook towards understanding international law? Do we need to have uh, people who are sitting comfortably within those chairs inside these organizations disseminate more information about international law when we specifically deal with non-international armed conflicts? Okay. Right, over to you. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's impeccable to know. Uh, something important Things that we see in general is that the responsibility that state actors and international organizations do have, they have failed to entail much here. So I'm getting right. into the practical scenario right now. Uh, when it comes to the recognition, or I should say the legalization, uh, it's not just that something which is de novo, which means something new in law, cannot be arrived at. But the problem which comes into, because I'm not getting into international law per se, not just because IHL is not my area, 
but also because uh, international relations and the current and ethnocentrism is my area so mm-hmm. what happens is that the ethnocentric world order which has been based on civilized people if we say in general because civilized people actually made the idea of international relations uh, and you know how this civilized society started it started from europe and not actually from uh, eastern europe it started from the most top uh, countries who were literally kind of a civilized civilized societies according to their own definition now these countries mm-hmm. uh, you know before the westphalian order were uk i should say the great britain england but i will britain, say uk yeah, yeah. uh to an extent great britain and then we have finland we have some, some scandinavian countries like sweden as well norway uh france to an extent uh germany yes and also the tsarist russia so these the tsarist russia was also there uh the united states mm-hmm. came after the american revolution so yeah to an extent it was also joined but the development of that sanctionable authority and all of that took centuries and it took because the inclusion of third uh, world actors third world countries like you know in asiatic regions in african regions in the asean side also in australia asia took time now that we have globalized multipolar world order that we have countries like india and even china and singapore who are actually having some military stakes and who are helping us in various un peacekeeping operations dealing with such hostilities dealing with such conflicts uh what still is actually a problem is uh which uh, i would take into consideration is that the rise of a non consensual stage because the way security is to be dealt it is to be dealt mm-hmm. with a kind of a trust the, or, mm-hmm. and the sense of trust is determined by how local interests matter because globalization for example it actually has a very imp- big imperative in determining the international consensus for example internet came into existence okay and internet was mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, taken to a larger landscape by the tunis agenda of 2003 then uh, the budapest convention came which was a part of european laws uh, but it was still only limited to the european union members but still it was how a convention then an international organization was formed itu international international telecommunication union that actually had an impact on telecommunication laws and the transnational imperative that was created the geneva conventions on the other hand even if it is followed by many nations still has given interna- the case of international armed conflicts to be minimized because earlier war when one was considered to be an act which was just now war is something which is an avoidable act under international relations and nation states would not pursue so much hard power or in a, or a discrete kind of hard power in general they would pursue a kind of soft power that actually leads to economic relations the frugality that comes into being is uh, you know these uh, non state actors in the ihl not the general international law wale means uh, i am not referring to those actors who are you know civil societies or hackers or general people well, even uh, exactly exactly uh, okay. sorry the violent non international actors i should say yes the violent non international actors and like the terrorist groups kind of people or those yeah. people who create disruption who are indirectly connected to military heads or heads of state heads of state mm-hmm. so these actors are still discrete like in south sudan like in syria like in iraq and also 
these south uh, these uh, I sh- i'm sorry yeah these uh, non state actors have a very important role in certain asiatic regions as well but i think the problem that actually comes into the consensus is firstly understanding what is to be resolved number one secondly the moral capital that the world has in general because uh, it's mm-hmm. not just the five permanent members who always do the work and it's not just the asiatic uh, the top asiatic countries like india russia and china and to an extent i should say countries like the philippines like bangladesh and also nepal pakistan these can play a role even in africa so uh, one thing is that trust is very important and when globalization is to be exceeded and such non state actors are to be regulated public accountability is a must which is a big problem which is anyways connected because these non state actors can be of any kind because when the role of cyberspace is going to increase it will not be as same as it was before i'm just taking an instance of cyberspace it may be a maritime issue who knows but i'm just taking an instance of cyberspace uh in case of the cyberspace as well it will draft itself out in a very vigorous and un- unprecedented way so uh the frugality of the world order is increasing so there is a, was a very interesting graph i could not show it in this panel otherwise i could have even show that uh very interesting panel uh, sorry a graph which was actually uh, made by mit so these guys actually right. made uh, you know the two coordinates uh, one of which was showing the year graph okay from 199 1910 to 2018 or 19 i think maybe they will extend to this year as well and uh, the other part was i think if i remember how many tremors or how how many conflicts happened or i should say it was i think about the fatalities how much it was causing the world order to be plummeted so the best plummeting or the best part where it was growing which in practical sense we should say the worst time in our lives was world war 2 the holocaust the auschwitz and everything and after world war 2 the cold war had started but still since the cold war till now uh the graph has shown itself that conflicts are plummeting killings are plummeting deaths are plummeting but the frugality yeah. of the world order is still under increase and it's because of the very constituent aspect of ethnocentrism because nation states impose international law on others like what uh, harry spent tried to do what ronald reagan did with gaddafi what uh, in general the us once tried to do with india but failed miserably at least in the case of bangladesh and also in other issues and also what the european nations like iraq and france tried to do in case of iraq so first a sense of legitimacy is very important because if uh, the frugality is not understood then the internal issues will anyways form a median of problems and one of them is populism anyways but beyond populism also uh, a, a sense of trust is very important to deprive uh, not deprive but actually remove ourselves from this state of frugality in the international order because being multipolar is not a problem being bipolar was a problem because being bipolar was risky where somewhere down the line the ussr might have thought okay let's have some nukes and you know get this thing done but the united states might have been thinking okay now let's just pursue some military exercise and bang them off 
so the bipolar order was not that safe other nations were also rising but now since it is a multipolar order it's a collective responsibility stake and the role of collective security will be very high but i think in that way that that actually makes globalization that makes us uh, as a responsible uh, representatives of the our communities and our countries more stable and we should act accordingly now i'm passing it to you yeah very well said abhivardhan uh, of course it was interesting it happens to be the root cause of modern uh, conflicts and i think it's it's only uh, an extension of what it used to be back in the day when we were still fighting and killing eight people a day uh, on an average for every person i mean for a human if you were to survive back in the day you had great organisms today the animals that can be humans that can be our children or whatever uh, but sure we have grown on to to develop a civilization which is uh, you know formulated out of a social contract given us and i think the fact that you know it's a contract between us as individuals and the state as in the government and not the parties which rule the governments decide that we have given somebody the rights to govern us in exchange of the fact that we will be listening or if not listening we will we will just pretending to listen to the norms and the laws laid down by these these people now uh, i think i the the topic of discussion is very very interestingly stated as uh, you know uh, it's called as non national armed uh, it's called common article 3 and how it can actually help modulate or sort of uh, affect non national armed conflicts in the present day scenario now i mean just quickly extending uh, from what you suggested and from what i suggested back 10 minutes ago is that when we look at non international armed conflicts when we look at conflicts uh, happening you know in and around us for instance i as an indian i as somebody who is residing in pune right now uh, our country is facing a lot of internal disturbances in regards to a certain policy which the government has implemented right now there can be numerous instances like these happening in and around your country wherein you know a bunch of people might resolve uh, or or a bunch of people might resort to a certain form of action through which they will oppose the government uh my question or my my observation rather than is that in most of the cases when a government is faced by its own people a government has been traditionally given more rights to suppress that uh, you know um, rebellion of sorts or you know rather put an end to the entire uh, rebellion because of the fact that it has more control over its territory and the subjects on its territory even if it were for for let's say uh, an organization which was assembled through government governmental means even if it was an organization which was formed of people who are well aware of their uh, duties and their rights even if it was the learned and the educated people who are trying to instigate others and start a revolution which is nothing but correct if it is against the state then traditionally the state has always found more rights within its own domain to suppress that only because it is them themselves who are the ones governing that right if you look at the right of self determination you know it's also regarded as one of the most vital rights available under international law 
uh, to you know most of the human beings around and if you have a coalesced amalgamated population which is wanting for let's say uh, determination for themselves and they should be granted that but who do they ask it from they ask it from the state and why should the state give it to them because the very fact that if they give it to them demolishes the existence of their own government is something that doesn't allow them to do so now in in that scenario whenever you know a, a collected group of people you know tends to ask for their rights which have been brazenly and rather forcibly taken away from them or rather in the first place been given to them the governments not respond in the most proactive manners this indeed you know leads to an avalanche of reactions which in turn results in protracted violence now uh the only time where uh, you will see again i will just you know reiterate this thing the only time when you will see non national armed conflicts mentioned under the purview of international law is within the ihl and that too only within the common article 3 of of geneva conventions my question is that since it is the government of a nation or the state over here which is fighting its own people it is definitely the duty of the government to you know settle the dispute and converge the violence to an extent where it is you know not inflammatory enough for the people around that region to be affected if the government is not capable if the government is not willing to do so it is the duty of the international community to sort of help and resolve it because there are different ways through which you know they can step in but yeah uh, you know there are international organizations such as united nations or regional framework such as uh, you know with the european union or the warsaw uh, pact so on and so forth who have been in touch with the duty of settling in these disputes provided they have gotten the consent of the of the states involved in these disputes what happens to a scenario what happens in a scenario when a state refuses to acknowledge the presence of an armed conflict within their territory in that scenario no international organization no matter how badly it is desired is entitled to help ameliorate the situation inside secondly even if they acknowledge the the, the presence of an international armed conflict how do you actually you know uh describe the dynamics of the armed the international armed conflict because after the uh, you know inculcation of uh, additional protocol 2 non international armed conflicts were given a status they were given a threshold through which they can be differentiated in terms of whether they'll be falling under common article 3 level of conflict or they'll be falling into the uh, ambit of additional protocol 2 level of international international armed conflict now the differentiation between uh, the, the supposed differentiation between the two uh, sorts of conflicts is that additional protocol to state that for a conflict to be known as a non international armed conflict uh, the party which is not the state you know has to be having a structure the structure has to be you know shown in form of how they operate how they transport their you know people how they procure money how they procure their resources to fight the government how do they actually basically end up becoming the opponent right on the other hand uh, the the threshold which is laid out by the common article uh, 3 of the uh, new organization also has ipso facto two criteria through which we can decide whether or not a conflict is 
uh, within the ambit of common article three level of concept. Now those those two uh, uh, criteria are that the parties should be identifiable. Of course, the fact that they've said that they are parties necessitates uh, you know them to be having two stakeholders to be involved. It is extremely easy to identify a state party. It is extremely easy. But how do you identify a non-state party, especially when a certain part of the country is, and, and that was a very important part of the country, is actively supporting that group of people who, if declared as the opponent, will be treated unfairly at the hands of international law. For instance, if you look at Maoists in India, you know, if you, if, you, if you look at people who are trying to, uh, you know, if you look at, let's say, Hezbollah, for instance, Hezbollah and the people inside Hezbollah, they are heroes, okay? They are people who are worshipped by the ones living inside Palestine. Even if there was an identification of, let's say, the state party, the identification of the non-state party as a violent non-state actor which is opposing the government is largely dependent upon how influential these people are and also about also, also on you know uh, how do they actually identify themselves? Do they resonate with the idea of the mass? Do they resonate with the idea of a substantial amount of you know civilized uh, population within the country, or are they just masked vigilantes who are trying to you know take law in their own hands and uh, distribute uh, vengeance across the country? The second criteria under Common Article Three, uh, as 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 I've read and I can precisely precisely recall is the intensity of violence that they have created. Now, as, as interesting as it might sound, but there is no legitimate standardized measure of the intensity of violence that a non-international uh, can cause for it to be identified as one. Right? Some NIACs might just blow up cars and bomb a few you know, buses, while the others might go on a you know, bloody, killing spree and they might just you know uh, shed blood across you know societies across neighborhoods across schools across hospitals for days continuously so Correct. the moment they cross that threshold the moment they cross that threshold they will just quickly be inserted into the domain of a conflict uh, that is uh, you know treated as a non-international armed conflict under the ambit of uh, uh, protocol 2 so me, my my data point of me, you know, speaking about this is that the threshold at which the NIACs operate, if it is too low, if it's if it's too little, then they are below the radar of getting detected getting detected as NIACs. The moment they enter, you know, into a certain form and they cross that threshold, they cross that threshold where they are still regarded as conflicts within the common article three and they enter additional protocol two. After a point in time, when they're about to cross that threshold as well, they are just, you know, inviting nations around them to be a participant to the entire conflict, and they make that conflict internationalized, and hence, again, not allowing any form of, uh, you know, international law mechanism for NIACs to step in and help address the scenario. My point is that the international law is not exactly at fault but the nature of how people respond with international law in regards to these conflicts is at, is at flaw. We are yet to identify the level at which they can be just 
shut and tagged as an IACs and how efficiently and how immaculately can nations or multilateral stakeholders step in and identify them as an IACs and stop them from protecting further. Because if you let them go ahead, they will become, you know, not internationalized armed conflicts and hence losing control of what could possibly be a scenario which can be saved by, uh, you know, the, the, the organizations as such. So, uh, I'll just quickly, uh, you know, address one one more thing uh, before I get to yes. you. Otherwise, I'm sorry, I'm stressing it. But this is something which I have no very dirty dead. Uh, and that is that, Tell me. Yeah, and that is yeah. that, uh, you know, the, the Red Cross, when it conducted, you know, uh, a research, a thorough research on the national humanitarian law, they wrote a commentary and they wrote, you know, a certain prescription which did not, in whatever way possible, differentiate or rather acknowledge the existence of two different thresholds to identify NIACs. Because the states in practice, the states in practice, I repeat, the states in practice have never had a distinct threshold to identify NIACs as per different levels. A form of action against the government is always a form of action against the government. It's just, it does not have levels uh, between it. Mm. It, it. It does not have level one, level two, level three, level four. If I mm. take up arms against the government and if I gather 20 people around me, my government would treat me the same way as I would be treated if I had 500 <laughs> people around me and I'd be, I'd mm. be doing this for the past yeah. 500 days. Right. So when states themselves do not have uh, a criteria to differentiate between NIACs of different levels. Why does international law have to have a criteria? Because the gray area that we have today is largely because of the presence of that criteria. So can Correct. we, as, as budding international scholars, international law scholars, as people who can actually take actions, try to have a process through which we can unify you know, the two levels of thresholds and formulate a common definition for a common Article 3 level conflict? There is no existing common standardized definition for a conflict which falls under the category of a non-international armed conflict as per common article C. And we need to have an explanation about why. Okay. So I'll address questions in a simple statement and I'll explain this, how this actually has been. Mm -hmm. So at a governmental level, if we see three kinds of economies, so I'm going to the economic and social level of countries because that is something which is very different. Now let's get to the developed countries for a while. Okay. Mm. So I'm categorizing into first, second, or third. I should not do that. I should say developed, undeveloping, and underdeveloped. Now let's get to developed first. Developed nations like the United States, uh, countries in the European Union, the European countries, the countries, some of the Eastern European countries, if I add. If you see the demographics, and if you see the political development, the developed economies have interest and also contributed much in the diplomatic convergence of IHL and other international law instruments. And that is very basic here, that's fine, that has been developing for a long time. But when it comes to defining it, I agree with you that, you know, in the literature itself, also in diplomatic conference and other particular events where uh, diplomats had to discuss on NISCs, they still do not have that much, uh, uh, yeah, I should say, regularized and standardized consensus on what an Absolutely. NISC should be. That is way true 
and it happens because it happens because first there's a history of historicity the historicity never leaves a state's quality what kind of politics is it is whether it is a geopolitical problem or it's an internal political problem or maybe within the internal maybe an individualistic problem right. like uh, uh, what happens is uh, often uh, you know when the 2611 attacks happened in india or when the pulwama attack happened in kashmir and also other attacks like the patha pathan court in pakistan and india so what happens is let's take india for example what happened is that first the law making perspective of the lawmakers and the people have been very very different since we talk about constitutional morality which drives nations as well as their judicial authorities their parliamentarians the prime minister and the cabinet minister, cabinet of ministers whatever be the uh, state structure sometimes they have president as a higher authority sometimes they have a prime minister as a higher authority i'll not go into that but i'll say the executive branch so when the mm-hmm. executive uh, the legislative and the judicial branch do have activity with the people and the people are also moralized as well as developed in that way to understand what their powers are and how they should pursue is very important uh you said that uh, okay uh, if i have a gun or any particular kind of weapon i wage a war against the government that is under the indian penal code if you are an indian in in mm-hmm. indian territory under the indian penal code 1860 okay great now let's move forward what happens then maybe you are accused then you are taken into charge sheet filing and everything happens that's it but that's something which is internally happening right but right. something which is very interesting here to understand is that political legitimation and social legitimation actually drives our policies now in hong kong when protests were going on and there were some council elections in with the pro hong kong protesters got a lot of lead because there the political parties who were pro hong kong got a lot of lead before all of that was actually happening there was a case that you must have seen it on internet or you know it has been seen that those protesters who are dealing with the authorities they were dealing in such a buoyant and such a benevolent way that actually they were giving no chance to authorities in in the communist from the communist party in beijing to actually drive out that these hong kong protests are like oh okay. they might think that they are illegitimate they are rogue they did not do that they actually were so peaceful and so orderly that actually they fought what happens is that when then when regimes become authoritarian or partisan and that's what is actually a problem in the us congress these days uh, for example the impeachment of donald trump i'm actually getting a little deviated but i'm talking about legitimation in general because that actually has a big role here and that will have a big role why because uh, such kind of conflicts it's not that they are not being measured or they are not being researched like for example if somebody says that the cyberspace implications exist then they must be regulated in a prudent way so that the human rights at that level are not violated so uh, in challenge annual if i remember there is rule number 46 so in that rule number 43 to 46 in that range you'll find how a state can curtail data rights but ensures that the human rights are not affected but what happens when you do an internet shutdown and somebody's economic rights are just violated like taking zomato and swiggy for a funny example but what happens right. is that when it comes to the economic rights and also the other you know when you dissect your responsibility to protect those rights because that's how states should develop 
that's what the mandate of the iscogens has been that has been the mandate of national order on any kind of country maybe you are not a democracy maybe you are not a full democracy maybe you are a flawed democracy india is sometimes said as a flawed democracy us is said sometimes not as a perfect or true democracy but uh, to some extent even if you are flawed it is ex- it is expectant it is expected that you actually act with a sense of legitimation and with a sense of prudence now this prudence comes when actually the people and the people who and people i mean the entities who are at, uh, you know who are state who are in the definition of state or i should say who are actually a very crucial part of the state actually are collaterally connected that actually happened in case of switzerland the people are so vigilant they are connected with the government they are connected with the federal council uh it's not in the case of uk in not, it's not still in the case it's, it's case of france if you see so uh, in just 2018 or 19 if i remember the gilets jaunes protest happened against uh, emmanuel macron and that was very interesting because it was a kind of populism which was not directly uh, embraced by the right wing parties you know who is who is led by marine le pen but the thing is that when such kind of issues happen first a social conscience to lev- to not or i should say to avoid any kind of uh, burden on the legal establishment to define everything without uh, any practical application would be rejected means that if you actually levy everything on law okay law just take this particular thing define it okay define it very strictly okay, when you define it very strictly it's good but after defining strictly if you don't see how the social implications via a policy perspective are built we cannot get a solution by the way one interesting hap- development happened so mm-hmm. uh so uh, one of uh, our leaks sarthak roy just did a wonderful job what happened was that india actually has expressed its interest in the human rights council to uh, ratify the un convention against torture that is something and at the same time the un of geneva because of the prescription the 370 ca saying that uh, the citizenship amendment act of happen is fundamentally discriminatory and the international media is saying that india not have political to do financy practically nnrc is actually very difficult because administrative authorities are not that strong to do that they don't have that structure but by principle nnrc is not a bad thing and that's how it is the thing is that when it comes to principle and their development we actually have a liberal consensus at least to think about that there's a problem and actually it took time and it will take time from the people itself himself, themselves why let's take a funny example so during the first world war uh, there was a suffragettes movement which had already started long time ago but during that time when mahatma gandhi had come to india and since the first world war was still going on the women in london in this in the streets of on the streets of london protested in a very impressive and and i should say non violent way against the her against i should say her majesty's government correct her majesty's government of the united kingdom to actually gain voting rights now the electoral suffrage that wanted, the electoral rights that they wanted was not granted before now everybody does have some rights right so what happens is that uh, political legitimation is a big problem we often and that's the problem with populism 
since you have actually mentioned about a problem with NIFC, I would predict something. Uh, it would not be easy for nation states to actually be very strict, very much, I should say, with the of what an NIFC is, because there are academic examples, there are proofs, but the problem that actually comes into being is that a kind of ethical legitimation and autonomy among the people who vote is not there. It's not just the problem of misinformation, but it's, it's also due to the fact that they actually don't themselves understand how uh, a kind of you know autonomous civility is within themselves. When that will be achieved, and it will take time, because driving that also takes a sense. Like uh, the U.S. is blamed a lot for certain conflicts in the, uh, I should say, the world, and also in Afghanistan and in the Middle East. Obviously, that happens. But the U.S. had a moment when it had to fight the Soviets. It actually led to the rise. They, they themselves, uh, under the U.S. Congress, you know, countries of the Mujahideen. But at the same time, they used those people who were 14 years old or 16 years old to fight the Soviets with some immeasurable weapons. A lot of investment was done. But yes, the U.S. is responsible for what happened in Afghanistan. So, you know, the of growth of combating the problems, of combating uh, our, our realities takes time. So I'm not saying that uh, there cannot be a definition. There obviously cannot, can be a definition. I'm not going to say what it is because that's not in my mandate to do. But what mm. the problem is that uh, we cannot, you know, uh, push a lot of weight in the on law itself. That's the problem with constitutional morality, for example. If you, even if you go to fundamental rights, so you say, okay, uh, I'm just taking a, a little bizarre example, but it will explain my context in a better way. Right. So the, recently the, the Shabdimala issue happened and then the Ram Jamhumi issue happened. In both of the issues, what we realize is you cannot levy everything to the law. Why? In the Shabdimala issue, while Justice Indu Malhotra was the only person who dissented against the very judgment in which Justice Chandrachur, one of the chief, I should not say chief, but at least one of the prolific judges, wow. who yeah. gave very interesting and impeccable point on why the human rights should be protected. Because Article 25 is not applicable here. The status of religious domination is not given. There are certain state acts uh, with respect to the state of Kerala. And even if the Sabrimala judgment has come and gone into review, Penarai Vijayan, who is the CM of Kerala, due to the outbreak of uh, the dissent against the Sabrimala judgment, is not able to implement it. And why they are not able to implement it? Because in matters of faith, in matters where there is subjectivity or, or in matters where there is no clarity, it is sometimes better to let the people or the, uh, the, the very entities who are to be cured firstly become that vigilant and preventable to prevent their own uh, demons, if I quote it. So they should actually try to prevent their own demons out there. And ethical autonomy is very important these days. In third world countries, these problems happen the most. Developed countries, I don't think it will happen so much. You cannot expect so many NISCs in the United States than you expect in African countries or in the Middle East, or at least in Central Asia or North Africa. But and also in India, I don't think it happens so much. Even but the case is like uh, when it comes to deal with legitimacy, uh, we as the international community have a population 
is certainly difficult. Since I told it's an economic order, but a very frugal economic order. So every nation state, whether it comes to crucial issues like nuclear warfare and even dealing with cyberspace, have consultations. They take time. But yes, I would certainly recommend this thing anyways. That ethical legitimacy, start, legitimacy starts with learning and information. If NIACs are to be regularly understood, a kind of trend has to be created. Things must not be seen digitally. They must also be seen analog analogically. When you see them analogically, you get into the practical grassroots of what actually happens. And ultimately, that would make the purpose of Common Article 3 vibrant. I think that's the similar problem with the fundamental rights. That's a similar problem with the Indian Article 21. That is Article 21 of the Constitution. So problems are similar here. Ethical autonomy is very important. So I'd uh, conclude myself here. I hope I've been, I have not been long, but since now we are nearing to the end of the final panel and uh, I have received a notification just that, you know, our co-panelists did have certain technical issues and uh, one of them is working in the ICRP. She had to go for certain important affairs. So they are not available, unfortunately. Uh, but that's the case. That's the fate. No problem. But I would like to have certain remarks from your side because I've spoken too much. So I pass, I'll pass a bit to you. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much for putting it out in the most beautiful and most crisp of the ways. Uh, I think I think uh, most of what you discuss is revolved around the existence of the legitimacy uh, regarding if uh, we have a definition for common Article Three level disputes, how you know legitimate and how equally uh, you know believable it would be for all sects of people, all regions of the world. Secondly, uh, even if you know we tend to create something very strict and very logically uh, accurate, will that be enough for governments and for international societies to work upon? Because most of these conflicts are, as you mentioned, politically motivated and all of them, they have a reason for them to be existing. I think most of the governments which you see in the world right now are, you know, formulated and they are gotten to power because of these conflicts. And I think, uh, you know, the 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 uh, reminiscence of the examples that we see in case of Hong Kong or even in case of India for that matter, uh, you know, clearly state that uh, it, it's it's virtually impossible to crystallize uh, non-international armed conflicts under the ambit of international law. However, I have one thing which which has continuously uh, fascinated me, and I think I leave it as an open question to the ones who watch this uh, once we are done, and that is that. Uh, it, it, it has been clear to us that, uh, you know, Common Article 3, as a matter of fact, has existed as a part of treaty law. And therefore, it is only binding to the states which, you know, agree to ratify it or accede to it, uh, you know, and give their uh, consent to it. But the fact that the existence of uh, commentary is given to us by the ICBY, which is, it was the, uh, you know, uh, the international... Uh, I mean, if, if the ones who are listening to us are aware what I'm talking about, the ICTY and the ICTR were basically two legal systems which were established as criminal tribunals for what happened in Yugoslavia and Rwanda. So when they commented upon the nature of Common Article 3, they stated that it was followed 
in practice not just as a tricky law but also as a customary part of international law mm-hmm. and hence to respond to the claims of uh, you know people who've been uh, victimized and seek uh, let's say uh, some sort of a compensation or some sort of uh, you know satisfaction uh, from 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 the legal authorities it must be granted to them without uh, the 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 existence of a nation or a state which has contracted itself uh, to the geneva convention the common article 3 explicitly states that you know a non national conflict is one which is not international in nature and happens on yes. the territory of a high contracting party right now one whenever there has been a spill over of violence from let's say across borders you know the regions that have gotten involved they've often tried to make this internationalized as i have previously mentioned as well the ways through which the governments have dealt with them has been identical throughout these years what i'm yeah. suggesting is that yeah the, the existence of common article 3 as a matter of fact is very well uh, attributable to you know customary international law and by that change mm-hmm. is binding to all the member states involved uh, you know yeah. in, in in this world and not just the united nations or not just the you know high contracting parties for the geneva convention right yes. and i think that yes. the the identification of uh, the threshold before which you know a multilateral organization might just step in and resolve if it is made a little more clear and a little more organized probably common article 3 itself can be very very important in you know uh, preventing these conflicts from protracting uh, into full fledged violent armed, uh, assaults i get it there's a, there's a, there's a you know uh, strong necessity of uh, healthy rebellion of 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 healthy revolts and if that is a process to which we can get governments in place back up again i think i i would also love to uh, you know side with the most logical of these rebels and rebellions however the vested <laughs> and ulterior motives of the people who you know communicate because of violence and who basically live to violate the norms of international and domestic law the people who are mercenaries and whose sole motive is to you know create ambiguity in the eyes of law and you know perpetuate violence across you know streets cities for decades these people because of a very gray area within the ambit of international law are allowed to exist and i think that is extremely uh, insensitive of how international law takes care of the nations which are rendered as helpless and not uh you know strategically aligned towards these uh international armed conflicts so i think i think we've had a great great discussion that we were done and i'll i'll continue with you in regards to this once done once you're done with uh the conference as well uh, i'm sure yeah. that we can have a lot to talk about uh you know all the cases of nias in the recent past but thank you so much for having me on this panel and i think it was lovely to have you as my <laughs> uh, moderator for the session and uh, yeah. i'm going to be there where you are you're going to be here when i am and we'll do it again <laughs> definitely uh actually that's the chance because i had already moderated a panel on indian foreign policy so mm-hmm. uh actually sara had to moderate but uh, she's not available because of certain commitments in the icrc so actually she had worked on the projects uh in lebanon and israel so 
we actually lovely had expected yeah lovely to have and that actually could have been the case uh but yes one small addition and then i'll also conclude myself and this panel for today is that the role of customary international law has been phenomenal because mm-hmm. it's the driving force which actually org- is so organic that helps that it actually bridges all the problems but right. at the same time when the role of international legal customs do come in a then in a multipolar order what is my uh, discernment here is that uh, the cil itself will be very much complex or it might be a case that a cil may not come so much worthy worthy enough because that cil itself must have some moral and legal capital at the same time which is streamlined by nation states so uh, that actually is a part but yes uh, so, uh, in general uh, adopting something to avoid any kind of unusual legal pluralism among na- nation states and that's actually the concept of jus the vc uh, lt that are law of treaties right. and also in general international law that uh, any kind of legal pluralism which is not legitimate or i should say which is not in terms of how the world order is because there is always a balance between the natural morality which is the naturalist school of law the natural law school and the other one that is the uh, state interest that is the pragmatic school of law or i should say the pragmatic school of international relations which thinks about rogan nation states have their selfish interests and that is very basic and recognizable and foreseeable but that foreseeability should not be too much it actually does not make us moralized because that's a rule based international order and a rule based international order under multipolarity and yes one more thing uh, this multipolarity multipolarity has been very immature because we have not seen this multipolarity for a long time now because uh, there was a time this more and even this multipolarity which drives us it has been very uh, very uh, uh, i should say narrow because multipolarity started when nation states like the russian federation india china to an extent south arabia then i should add iran then i should add japan i should add uh, uh, european union as a whole and i should now say united kingdom differently because it is now brexit done but still before i should also add it these nations were not so emergent in the foreign policy perspective it was all about the ethnocentric us and the communist ussr that time was gone with the when the unipolar us became too powerful and also but ramifications there are historicity changes but this multipolarity is set to rise is also required to you know become much mature it has not ripened when it will when it when it will become more ripened we can definitely see again a stage of consensus okay one funny thing then i'll end this uh, we also we all know about gay rights right so the conservative party in the uk never ever did recognize gay rights after margaret thatcher and uh, john major so when john major lost the election to tony blair who was the labor party leader tony blair was the guy who actually made a consensus between the conservatives and the la- uh, the labor together to recognize gay rights in uk and it's because of tony labor's libertarian and uh, pro humanist policies that conservative party for a time 
even if it had certain elements which who were not uh, you know usually good now one of them right. is the prime minister but still he is appreciated for his brexit policy to an extent boris johnson but we had a wave of theresa may and david cameron so changes happen and you know that's the thing here so maybe uh, um, and nic is not an ideological problem as well and it's a completely moral and i should say a very representative problem for the world but right. the multipolarity has not ripened when it will ripen we can see more changes and maybe a very a cogent cil operation can be i should say not compartmentalized but democratized among nations so i'll now end this up and okay. thank you so much for coming i in my professional capacity apologize that you know the co panelists and the real moderator didn't come i had to moderate the session uh, but i think we really went into the polity and the introductory aspects of what nic is because uh, in general there are issues and the realistic imperative is there but the real imperative i think i believe we have talked much about the real imperative and the political imperative which is very important to drive something for this uh, legal concept so i think we have had a very good discussion and we hope to discuss more about it so now uh, we are uh, pausing this live session for now so people we will be available tomorrow at uh, 10 am indian standard time and we will start with a panel on uh, if i'm correct uh, um, cyber warfare or maybe i think it is on track 3 that is international human rights law thank you so much for your support it has been really a great time and see you soon very good morning to all the listeners from bangalore india my name is pritam ghosh and uh, i am working as an assistant professor of law currently with the school of law narsimonji institute of management studies bangalore uh, and i am also currently pursuing my uh, phd in international law from the national law school of india university bangalore which is a national law school here in india uh, my speech today is supposed to be on common article 3 of the geneva conventions and its implementation in non international armed conflicts uh, generally uh, so the starting point of this speech uh, would be an introduction to common article 3 to the geneva conventions <clears throat> as the uh, listeners might know that the four geneva conventions of 1949 Uh, were an important landmark in international law when they were adopted uh, back around 7 decades ago uh, so the four geneva conventions basically uh, are uh, the first convention uh, revolves around the uh, amelioration of the condition of the wounded and sick uh, in the armed forces uh, engaged on land Uh, the second one being uh, improvement in the condition of the wounded and sick uh, in the armed forces uh, on sea the third one relates to uh, improvement of the conditions of prisoners of war the people who have been captured and taken in as prisoners of war by a nation and the fourth one is uh, protecting the civilians who do not take part in hostilities or war generally and uh, post 1949 in 1977 there were two protocols which were adopted at the international level uh, 
in order to enforce and implement the Geneva Conventions. The first protocol was applied, com uh, applied the entire set of Geneva Conventions completely to uh, international armed conflicts, which is basically war among two or more nations. And there was a second protocol as well, which applied the entire set of conventions to non-international armed conflicts, which is basically internal armed conflict uh, in the nature of, uh, uh, let's say, a, uh, an armed conflict between uh, government forces and non-government rebel, rebel forces. Let's say, for example, in India, if the central armed forces fight against the Maoist rebels in various parts of the country, uh, trying to end the atrocities that the Maoist rebels might have committed, that kind of a conflict would uh, come under non-international armed conflict or internal armed conflict. Uh, so, common Article 3 to the Geneva Conventions uh, basically talks about following certain basic rules of war or rules of engagement. Uh, these are actually minimum standards which uh, the Geneva Conventions say that every armed force should follow. Uh, according to Protocol 1, uh, central armed forces which are engaged in war and according to Protocol 2, uh, even non-state forces which are engaged in internal armed conflict everyone should follow uh, and they talk about uh, first of all uh, avoiding unnecessary suffering collateral damage etc in any kind of war or conflict also they talk about uh, not uh, engaging people who may have been incapacitated due to sickness wounds detention etc or any other cause further in any ongoing war or armed conflict uh, and also they talk about uh, something known as grave breaches. Now grave breaches is something which actually comes from the international humanitarian law branch and the standards of international uh, humanitarian law, uh, but originate from international human rights law. As we know, international human rights law is something which is applicable both during times of war as well as times of peace. Uh, so basically the international human rights law provisions or principles applicable during times of war were later on adopted into international humanitarian law and uh, drafted into and adopted into the Geneva Conventions and the two protocols. So uh, the grave breaches standard is something which is obligatory as per international humanitarian law for every armed force to follow and basically it stands for uh, grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions as well as grave breaches of international human rights law and international law generally. Uh, let's say for example uh, taking in people as captives and prisoners of war and subjecting them to custodial torture in order to extract a confession or let's say uh, important in strategic information about the next armed conflict or the next war that might happen anywhere in the world, etc. Uh, they were applied uh, on prisoners and detainees who were taken in at detention centers like Abu Ghraib in Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay in Cuba by the US Navy SEALs. Uh, and, uh, application of the grave breach standard has actually prevented 
many countries from uh, violating the basic principles of international human rights law and international humanitarian law as well. Uh, so, uh, therefore, uh, from what I said in the last three or four sentences, the grave breach standard therefore translates to a very important provision uh, at the international level generally and is applicable uniformly to both central armed, armed forces, government forces as well as the non-government forces. Uh, but at the ground level, the reality is that most of the armed forces around the world, whether state or non-state, do not know about, first of all, the Geneva Conventions and the additional protocols, then common Article 3 as well, and therefore, naturally, uh, most of them are unaware about the grave breach standard as well, because of which uh, many times uh, what happens is, uh, in the last around three or four decades, in spite of international humanitarian law being there, uh, the common Article 3 standards and the grave breach uh, provisions, the grave breach standards have not been followed or have not been complied with generally by armed forces. So yes, uh, definitely governments as well as international organizations, neutral organizations such as ICRC, etc., are making great efforts to spread awareness about the grave breach standards and the common article 3 standards uh, in non-international armed conflicts but uh, still a lot is left to be desired as far as awareness is concerned and creating awareness is concerned uh, i would say it's much easier to actually educate and train the central armed forces of any country uh, and impose the obligations of international humanitarian law on them rather than educating the non-government forces and then uh, telling them that yes, the IHL standards, the common uh, Article 3 standards and, and the grave breach uh, certain minimum standards are applicable on you as well. Uh, one way of explaining this to them could be in, uh, to make them understand the benefit of following article, uh, common article 3 and uh, the benefit of complying to the standards of common article 3. That is that in plain and simple language, uh, if you follow the common article 3 standards and if you comply to the grave breach standards and you don't violate them then you can also avoid collateral damage and unnecessary suffering of your own forces so let's say a non-government force is fighting against a government force uh, if the non-government force uh, keeps it in mind that we are going to avoid any kind of collateral damage or unnecessary suffering or we will not subject civilians who are not taking part in the hostilities to unnecessary suffering and uh, collateral damage, then in turn, uh, even those civilians as well as the opposing government forces may respect uh, our rights and may respect the fact that even uh, the members of our forces uh, uh, would want to avoid collateral damage and unnecessary suffering and would not want to become victims of the same. So yes, it works both ways. This is how uh, it can be explained to the non-government forces and uh, better awareness can be created uh, probably by following uh, this education standard, training standard. Uh, the other very important aspect of applying common article 3 to non-international armed conflicts is uh, the uh, 
certain minimum standards or certain minimum conditions uh, for the rules of engagement. <clears throat> How do we engage in war and what are the things or what are the standards we follow so that uh, collateral damage can be avoided? Uh, because again, from the viewpoint of the non-government forces, if you are not respecting the opposing side's uh, rights and duties, then in turn they may not they may do the same thing and they may not respect your rights and duties as well uh, so yes uh, though we say that these things can be solved through uh, across the table discussions awareness programs etc but at the ground level i think uh, even before engaging in war or even before engaging in an armed conflict let's say if the people who are heading a government force and the people who are heading a non-government force sit down on one table and they agree that yes under all circumstances both sides will try to avoid collateral damage and unnecessary suffering then i think the common article 3 standards can be implemented in a better manner in non-international armed conflicts uh, this is necessary because at least uh, in country in continents like the Asian continent and the African continent, we have always seen in the conflict torn areas that because common article 3 standards were not followed, therefore not just the armed forces, people who were maybe related to the armed forces in some way or uh, people who were present at the spot when government forces and non-government forces were engaging with, with each other were affected badly. So therefore there are umpteen instances in uh, at the international level, at the global level where we have seen uh, instead of the grave breach of common article 3 uh, being avoided, we have seen the grave breach of common article uh, 3 uh, actually uh, not being avoided and grave breaches actually happening at the ground level. Uh, the other very important stakeholder in this entire process are the uh, UN agencies, the international organizations which are working outside the mandate of the UN and which are completely independent and neutral. Uh, even they can uh, make it a point to go to the fields uh, where conflicts are happening and uh, even they can try to create awareness about uh, among the non-government forces that yes common article 3 is something which is a reality it is here to stay uh, and it is something that you need to follow uh, which is for uh, which will be ultimately for everyone's good so uh, and they also need to spread a very strong message across that uh, organizations like the ICRC etc are working for uh, humanity, are working for human good and we feel that common article 3 is something that uh, can implement uh, humanity into war, can implement human good into war uh, thereby uh, completely doing away with the aspect of collateral damage and unnecessary suffering to uh, civilian life and property. Uh, as of now, uh, in 2020, uh, with the situation of implementation across the world, because international humanitarian law and international law generally is a very westernized concept, uh, what I am generally observing is that 
the entire process of creating awareness about common article 3 originated from the western world and is restricted to the western world itself at the moment so to speak the eastern world the asian continent the african continent and uh, let's say uh, eurasia etc etc uh, these regions are not really aware about uh, what common article 3 is what international humanitarian law is what could be the consequences of following or not following common article 3 so uh, therefore uh, a lot is uh, left to be desired uh, when it comes to creating awareness uh, in the eastern world if i may use the term that way uh, for this again uh, the governments that are there present in this in these regions the international organizations offices that are present in these regions have to take up a major role and have to spread the message that yes common article 3 is something that uh, not just international humanitarian law common article 3 is something that even international human rights law advocates uh, which is applicable to both times of war and times of peace because time and again we keep seeing it that uh, let's say if we take the example of the african continent even when there is no conflict going on uh, non-government forces may engage in unnecessary uh, conflicts or may engage in unnecessary uh, uh, unnecessary uh, targeting of civilian life and property because of which uh, there is a general impression across the world that yes africa is a region which is generally conflict torn but at times most of the conflicts that start or most of the conflicts that are initiated are just to target civilian life and property rather than with a proper agenda behind the conflict uh, which i think is completely unnecessary and which i also think is something that common article 3 and its implementation can completely prevent uh, so yes uh, common article 3 therefore uh, is not being implemented in a desirable way at the ground level even now and uh, every stakeholder involved in the process of implementation of this article have to play their role in a better manner to ensure that it is implemented at all levels uh, uniformly and uh, in all forces whether they are government whether they are non-government i mean because uh, common article 3 is something applicable to non-international armed conflicts therefore we are saying that uh, the non-government forces should be made aware about it but then uh, even the government forces are not aware about these things uh, and what are the implications of common article 3 so therefore every side that has engaged in a conflict in the past and uh, are going to possibly engage in conflicts in the future should be educated about this uh, which i think will ensure its better implementation thank you